0: What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk Podcast with my good friend John Lightsey. John and I talk about retail investing and how uh, retailers view the market and how people just in general, are viewing inflation. So be sure to join in and listen for a good old talk. And as always, this is not financial advice, and both John and I are not financial advisors, so please do not take anything that we say in this episode as financial advice. Now, let's get to the episode. All right, we are back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast. I am joined with a special guest, my good friend, John Lightsey who is a friend of mine in the Tampa Bay area. So, John, why don't you tell me about yourself?
1: Right. So, John Leitze, Uh, I was born in Orlando, but raised in the Tampa area. I actually went to Armwood High School, which is over kind of in the Brandon Sefner area. Um, after I, you know, kind of went through high school in Tampa, I used to weigh about 300 pounds or so. So, I was lucky enough and blessed enough to... Uh, Play Division one football up in Mercer University play offensive line and then um, after about two knee surgeries I realized football was not my my profession or my future so I went pro in something other than sports which, which was accounting and I decided to come back home to Orlando to go to UCF to get my master's degree.
0: Nice nice so uh, tell me a little bit about your work experience. Uh, I know you're not just just right out of college or an older guy like me seasoned is what, what what's said in
1: the uh, profession. But no, so when I was in my master's program at UCF, I actually had a professor who asked the entire class of about 100 uh, what we wanted to do with our future and where we wanted to see ourselves go professionally. And um, he asked us if we wanted to stay in Orlando or travel abroad or, you know, go to one of the financial hubs of Chicago, New York, Boston, or even out in California, where the tech hub is. And that kind of sat with me for a good bit. And after a few things happened, I saw a few signs from um, God kind of led me to go up to New York city where I uh, practiced auditing and consulting uh, for about three years. And then as everyone's aware, uh, COVID hit. And so that kind of shut New York city down. And after that I decided I needed to kind of come back home and uh, spend more time with family. And that's when I kind of pivoted from the more, auditing and consulting vibe to more so of operational support um, with finances. So uh, currently, that's where I sit now is
0: just doing operational financial support. Nice. So yeah, so you recently went under, you know, a new interview process, and you got a new job, to my understanding, kind of during this time that they're deeming the great resignation, because a lot of people are uh, not really being, I guess, super loyal to jobs or, you know, they they got fired during the COVID crisis and they're kind of bouncing around until they find a new, quote unquote, work home. Um, so what was it like going through the job interview process? Uh, did you do anything like specifically to make yourself stand out? And uh, yeah, just uh, do you think that, you know, that interview process was any different from, you know, when you first got your original job?
1: So I think when you... Have your first original job right. Employers understand that you're fresh out of college. You're not always going to say the right thing. You're not going to really know per se what you're talking about. Um, when it comes to when I got my first job out of my master's program, it was more so work at you know focusing on your work ethic and focusing that you know you're you're a team player, which I still think that you need to portray in any type of interview. Um, but I'd say the first thing that to start with any interviews, you know, showing up on time. Uh, my college coach always had a, a saying, you know, five minutes early is on time and on time is late. Um, so typically, especially now with all of these Zoom calls and Microsoft team calls that go on, you should be the first person logged on and waiting in the lobby. Otherwise, you know, if you're if you're late to the interview, that immediately writes you off, at least in my opinion, when we're hiring at my current job, if you're late or even if you're, you know, even if it's one minute, it's, it's still kind of just shows that you don't respect my time. So why should I respect yours? Um, and then another thing is, you know, you're going to get a lot of technical questions at this stage in your career. Uh, when you're fresh out of college, they know you don't really know a lot. Um, they may ask you a basic question like, you know, how do you balance balance sheet or, you know, explain to me, you know, the flow of a and but at, at my stage, they started asking you very in-depth questions. I remember, my most recent job, they asked me to pretty much backtrack um, net income to free cash flow, which is not something that you would typically ask a person fresh out of college. Um, and so I think the, the standard is higher when you're at my level. Um, so again, hammering, you know, your work ethic and a bit, ability to pick up items on the fly stays consistent from then and now. And then, um, I would say stressing your proactivity compared to your reactivity, uh, employers want someone who's not going to wait around and just wait to be told. I mean, that's typically what an employee is, but if you really want to progress in your career, I think being proactive is very key. And so I think that's kind of what set me apart from the rest of the candidates. Um, especially in my, my newest job was, you know, I very much stress that team, I'm a team player, um, work ethic is strong and then I know a lot of people today stress the work from home culture but if you're trying to find a new job I understand that you need to find some things that kind of tailor to your needs but I think overall that you know you need to kind of be flexible with your new job and you know some employers still want you to come in five days a week I'm currently going in five days a week um some employers only want you know half work from home, half in office, and then some are completely remote. So I think it's all about setting expectations too with your potentially future employer. Um, But yeah, I'd say that that those are key. And then when it comes to items you shouldn't bring up, um, especially on the first one, I had pretty much a list from day one uh, because lucky enough, I had mentors who stressed what not to bring up during especially the first interviews, You know, things like pay, PTO, Work-life balance, I know you want to find something that works with your work-life balance, but if you start off the rip with mentioning that you want to work from home, guess what? You're not really in a negotiative state. I know it's the great resignation, but you're still applying for a job. And if you start off the rip with that, it kind of sets the tone that you focus more on, you know, kind of your preferences rather than the team's preference. Um, and then also, I, I recommend not to, you know, bring up any negative aspects of your current slash former employer um because if you're talking bad about them in that current moment the person who's interviewing is going to pretty much say well wow what are they going to say about us if you know hypothetically they were to leave it's it's just not i i think it's just not a good look um but other than that i mean i i think it's just all about being you know just truthful and what you want kind of matching and aligning those you know expectations
0: yeah, I think, uh, you know, I I'm kind of in the similar same boat. I, I recently started a new job about three months ago. And I think what helped me was almost like putting myself in a position to, you know, stand out. Um, so that my company had like an open house. So, um, you know, I would recommend for anybody to just kind of look at where places you want to work. And, you know, if you can reach out to somebody, find a mutual connection, you know, that always helps too. Um, and uh, I think now too, you know, a lot of these companies... Are doing a lot more interviews um you know my last job i went through i think four separate interviews and they were saying that you know that was above the industry standard and, and everything like that and at this current job that i'm at i had five although they were a lot shorter and and everything like that it was uh still you know a long interview process so yeah i mean did you notice anything like that did you go through through multiple interviews for your one as well yeah. So
1: for my current role, um, I had three, well, I'd say
0: three and a half. I
1: I considered the last one kind of a half interview. Uh, the first one was with uh, my current VP. The second one was then kind of implementing the current team members with the th- VP. So that way it's kind of get a team sense. And then the last one is a panel interview that I had to deal with from different um, senior leadership. So in my interview, I believe I had the head of marketing, the head of accounting, the VP of finance, and then I want to say it was the head of corp dev, uh, corporate development. Sorry. So that way, it can kind of they can kind of gauge: okay, is this guy a team player, and can he work in all facets of the business? Because although you may you know get a job in you know recruiting or finance or accounting or you know data integration, ultimately you're going to have to work with other department heads um because it is a business as a whole it does not just focus on one work stream so um yeah i'd say that and then the last one was just like the last kind of um you know meeting to discuss expectations going forward which i think that is the moment in an interview where you kind of need to set your terms um for instance in mine i i told the vp i was like hey you know he told me yeah you pretty much have the job and i told him well hey i have you know these family vacations already booked from my current like you know my current role are we are we going to maintain this or hey i i like to work from home on wednesdays because um i'm not in in this instance because i don't have kids but my kids get off early on wednesdays it's their early day i want to go spend time with them i think that's the moment and time in an interview where you should kind of set your terms and um, establish those kind of barriers with your employer
0: gotcha all right, so you, um, you know, you don't have to dive into necessarily the exact industry or anything like that, but I know you work with a lot of people in the trades. Um, so, what is it like to to work with a lot of people that are in the trades? Because you know, a lot of people our age now are getting into more of the, like you said, the techie jobs, or maybe the they're looking for a work from home. Whereas, you know, I I think the trades are going to be here to stay, and they're going to be needed now more than ever, just because so many people, it seems like are kind of gravitating towards that. So, um, you know, what is it like? I know you're, you're more on the, you know, accounting side, but what is it like uh, working with uh, a bunch of people in the trades? Right. So I, you know, I do work in
1: the finance department and uh, accounting department. However, our company very much stresses to do a ride along with a member in the trades that we support. Um, It just opens your eyes to a different perspective. And on my ride along it was just eye-opening to what these guys and girls deal with on a daily basis, and I think what was even more impressive was the fact that a lot of these people who are in the trades, um, you know, they they didn't have a college background. Um, a lot of them are former military um, or just you know high school dropouts that didn't really know where, what they were doing. They were lost. Our society, you know, kind of pushes up that you need to be you know in finance or you know in tech or law or what you know the you know kind of the sexy jobs per se where i mean if i told people hey how would it feel if you could only go to 2 years of school debt free and come out making six figures without even saying what the job entails a lot of people would say oh that's 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 money why why wouldn't i take that but that is the trades um i think the lowest amount our one of our you know our individuals make is probably in the 80 to 90k range which is still great money especially the fact that you don't have a college degree and you know you don't really have any other options you go to trade school for two years a lot of times these companies will pay for your trade school because there is such a need for the trades and you know ultimately if you want to come out of that position and become you know a manager or you know a gm you can i've seen it in in my specific company most of our GMs are former tradespeople who have been in the industry for, you know, 20 to 30 years. And they you know, realize, hey, I know these trades inside and out. I can run a business. I, I know what what these people like, what they don't like, what works, what doesn't work. And so I think that's one thing that our society really hasn't stressed. And, you know, ultimately, I think that, yeah, a lot of people consider the trades are, quote unquote, dying. Mm-hmm but I think eventually our society is going to meet kind of a convergence point where they are going to be the, the profession of choice. I mean, you, you pretty much make your hours, you ride around in a truck all day by yourself. So you don't really have to interact with a lot of people. And again, I think it's, it's something that our society doesn't really focus on, but I think there needs to be a refocus on, you know, plumbing, electrical work and um, HVAC install, because those are some of the hardest working people I've seen and, they, they are the definition of making something out of nothing because I've, I've, I've ridden along with these people and they're the hardest workers I've ever seen. Um, so yeah, I think that that's kind of my viewpoint on the trades.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. So, I mean, just, uh, anecdotally for my, uh, you know, my rental property, I have like a little area where I had, you know, concrete and, and I needed a plumber to kind of come out and, and bust it up. And so, you know, while he was busting it up, I was, I was cleaning it up. And uh just kind of talking with him, chatting with him, and he was like, Yeah, you know, I was kinda you know, it's similar to your story. I was I was lost. I didn't really know. So I just, you know, I knew I had a good work ethic if I, you know, could see something that that could come from like come to fruition from it. So if he was making money, he he would do it. And uh so yeah, he said he just told me about how, you know, kind of similar. He he had a mentor and he just learned everything that that he could do. And then, you know, now he has his own business and he has some of his own rental properties and everything now too. And it's like, you know, no college degree to, to that. And uh, he's probably making more money than me. And, and uh, it sounds like, you know, that the lowest paying job there is making more money than I, than uh, people that I know that have college degrees. So right. um, I think it, it's interesting. You know, I, I think too, you're, you're kind of right on there. It's like, we're getting to the point where we're almost at a tipping point where, you know, people in general don't want to work, um, you know, for, whether it's it causes some sort of inconvenience whether they have to go into the office or something because i've kind of had it good for these past couple of years but um you know we're even seeing big companies like google start to force people to come back in um because you know people are realizing like at home they're not really putting in as much work as they, as they were before so um yeah I, I i agree with you there i think the uh the trades are going to uh you know, start to, to come back, and I think that there's always going to be a place for them. So, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, it's something for, for whoever's listening, it's uh, definitely going to be something that's going to be there, you know, forever because we're going to be needing to build a lot more homes, especially with this uh, this housing crisis that we got going on,
1: right? I mean, and what a lot of people don't realize either is that a lot of these businesses are mom and pop shops that you know run probably a 10 to 15 percent EBITDA margin, which um, for any of the viewers, I mean that's phenomenal. I mean, if you run a ten percent even a margin, let's say you make a million dollars off of revenue, and I mean you're racking in a hundred k a month that's what is that one point two million a year I mean yeah. that's just absurd so um yeah, too shabby. <laughs> yeah it's again it's it's a great profession if college wasn't your thing, so
0: yeah. All right. Well, now let's get into, um, you know, so a little bit about inflation and how you're kind of seeing this uh, affect um, these mom and pop shops. Because I think, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, every, everything goes, I, th- I think inflation kind of affects the the middle to lower class more drastically than the rich, of course, because the rich have a bunch of investable assets and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we actually had the, in- the inflation print uh, today getting released uh, as we're recording this on the 12th of uh eight and a half percent year over year for the month of March. Um so of course uh you know as my listeners probably know I, I don't believe fully that the that the inflation print is uh you know justified and uh that eight and a half percent is accurate but you know it's the highest uh inflation that we've reported um I think since like the early seventies. So um how have you seen it uh, kind of affect um, you know, the businesses that you're interacting with.
1: Right. So professionally speaking, I mean, inflation is impacting everyone. I don't care if you're, you know, rich or poor, or whatever the case may be. I mean, inflation is impacting everyone. I know like kind of like what you pointed on, the lower and middle class always gets hit the worst because a lot of those people don't have investments. Um, You know, a lot of them just in general, I mean, you're paying higher prices for goods and services. So Ultimately, unless you're owner of the goods and services, you're getting hit. Um, Case in point, I mean, our materials costs, uh, for the most part, is going up pretty high just because of inflation. Um, Luckily for our business, we're recession proof and somewhat inflation proof because of the fact that we've developed um, relationships with these suppliers where if there is an increase due to inflation, we don't get hit as hard. Uh, But that's a different contractual agreement. Um, one area that I've seen a massive hit also is just the gas prices that have risen. Um, I know that's impacted as well by the you know Ukraine Russia crisis, but I mean before even before that, I mean gas was rising. So I think what it does is obviously it stretches businesses very thin because your your incremental cost is going up, right? like it's it's typically your indirect cost that is taking a hit. It's not really your direct labor, your direct materials, um, direct cost of goods sold, because usually that goes hand in hand with revenue. One way to combat that, though, is obviously rising prices, which, you know, if we rise, you know, raise our prices, then um, obviously our consumer feels it. So I think it's just a nonstop cyclical process that, you know, once one company raises their prices, we in turn raise ours. And then ultimately the consumer is the one who gets hit. And like you said, I mean, we haven't seen anything like this since, you know, the 70s slash 80s. It's it's unprecedented. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not due to one set administration. Typically, inflation takes over years and years of just fiscal and monetary policy. So um, it'll be interesting to see what the Fed does to kind of combat this. I know they're talking about raising in interest rates, but um, I think that's just kind of a bandaid approach and I think, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting couple of months coming up, so we'll see.
0: Yeah, I have a, a decent amount of macro guys come on here and and it's interesting to hear like a, a lot of different theories. Um, So I've had one that's come in that believes that they're going to raise rates three times um, total. So they've already raised them once. Um, I've had others that think they're kind of going to stay to their word and and raise it to 1.9% by the end of the year. Um but I've also seen some some other things like floating around about uh you know inflation stimulus checks uh being being uh, tossed around too so I don't know I mean it'll be interesting to see the fed's response and uh to at this point, I'm not really sure like anybody can really you know predict uh how they're gonna react because um uh, you know everything that they've they've kind of gone through has just been almost unpredictable whether it's printing money or, or something like that so um right, and I think. I mean,
1: to your point too, kind of what you said about the inflation stimulus checks. I mean, I know a lot of people think that's like the greatest idea of sending all of these, you know, payments and all that, and I, I get the theory behind it, but ultimately speaking, the long term effect of increasing the money supply, especially during you know times of inflation, um, it's kind of like what I said. It's a band aid approach. It's not a it's not a fix. It's like you know having a leaky uh, pipe and just slapping on a little bit of putty to fix it. That's not that's not going to fix the infrastructure. You need to completely redo the piping system. So, um yeah, again, I it'll be it'll be an interesting, you know, year year and a half to see what happens, but who knows.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, you kind of touched on a little bit of uh, you know, from like a business standpoint, you know, kind of pointing to um, you know, the cost going to directly to the consumer, which I think you know, a lot of times when businesses feel these inflation, uh, you know, whether it's gas prices uh, or uh, material costs or anything like that, it always gets passed down in the consumer one way, shape or form. Um, so, you know, both of us are, are consumers in one sh- one way, uh, whether it's groceries or anything like that. So um, what are some ways that you're kind of looking at uh, to, I guess, combat uh, inflation on your on your own have you uh you know changed any habits or anything like that?
1: yeah, so I think my habits ultimately stem from the two thousand eight uh financial crisis. Um, my father was in real estate development which was heavily impacted during that time um and so my family didn't make a single dollar for probably three to four years um so my dad's always been economically fiscal he got that from his grandfather so um I think that I've kind of always been equipped to this. It's not so I'm making a drastic change. I know a lot of people beforehand were spending boatloads of money and just going on these shopping sprees and going on these nice, lavish vacations. And um, ultimately, I think it comes down to spending within your means. If you know you want to save up for a trip, well, guess what? You can't go out to dinner every night. Um, So I think the ways that I've changed my viewpoint is Typically speaking, you know, Monday through Friday, I try and you know, stay pretty pretty lean. Um, you know, I cook from home. I try not to go out to lunch every day like a lot of my coworkers do. Um, I don't go on these like massive shopping sprees. I only kind of buy with what's in my means. So if I need a new pair of jeans, I'll go buy one, but I'm not going to go buy four pairs of jeans. Um, and then when it comes to you know vacations or very extravagant expenses, you know, if I know it's coming um within the you know the next year i set aside a portion of my paycheck to kind of budget for that so that way by the time that that expense arises i'm not like frazzled or scared or just you know trying to figure out like okay where am i going to pull all this money from i've been saving the past you know six five months to be prepared for this so i think one way people can do that is again eating at home. It's the easiest way to save money. What people don't realize is if you buy lunch every day, right? $12, let's say $10 a day for 30 days, right? 300 bucks right there that you could save each month that if you save up for five months, that's $1,500. Guess what? That's a flight anywhere, you know, to Europe. So it's just kind of one of those things where you have to kind of put a monetary viewpoint on it. And Again, I it, it all stems back to kind of spending within your means. I know, I know, there's a lot of people, especially in Tampa, who try to keep up with the Joneses and try and buy the newest and greatest thing, and always try and stay relevant with what they have and what they've purchased. And you know, luckily, my dad, mom always instilled in me that that stuff kind of doesn't matter. And if it came down to the end of the day, if you know, if you looked at their personal balance sheet and you stopped the clock, they'd probably be in the red. So. Um, I'd say that's probably, that's, that's pretty much how I approach my personal expenses. I don't know about you.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I view them very similarly, similarly to you. And I think we're kind of, uh, you know, exceptions to the rule. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of Americans have, you know, massive credit card debt and, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, especially during this time where things are getting more expensive and then that debt's just going to keep piling up and, you know, Um, Although the government keeps halting student loans, um, you know, I know many, uh, you know, friends and and family members that have, uh, you know, massive student loan debt and things like that. So, um, you know, it's just kind of a a cycle that um, I think if, you know, this inflationary time comes, like more people are kind of waking up to the fact that, hey, you know, although the money printing and the stimulus checks, maybe they don't understand, like, you know, the full reason why it's happening, but they understand, Hey, I, I go to the grocery store. It used to be a hundred dollars. Now it's $150. Like what the hell is happening? Um, so right. I think a lot of people are starting to wake up and figure out, you know, we need to figure out something to combat this issue. Um, and they don't really know the reason why. I mean, we have, uh, I know some people, you know, kind of believe, you know, maybe the media or the narrative or something like that or, or believe it's potentially the Putin rate rate hike or, or something like that. But, um, you know, I think uh, as, as soon as this Russian-Ukraine uh, war ends, um, you know, wh- whenever that'll be, if uh, inflation is kind of here to stay, like they've said, uh, they'll kind of realize like, hey, it, it wasn't all this war. So, um, yeah, another... Uh, Another topic that we, uh, you know, as far as inflation goes, we mentioned it here before, um, but we both live in Tampa. And I think mm-hmm. uh, Tampa and, you know, Texas and a lot of these southern states um, have kind of seen skyrocketing rent. Um, I think that's kind of a, a lot of due to the to COVID-19 where, you know, Tampa and uh, Florida as a whole and, and Texas and a lot of these Southern states kind of stayed open, so a lot of people decided to move down. And uh, you know, like like we mentioned before, the the remote working uh, people want to live a little bit where it's sunny, maybe a little bit nicer place to live. Uh, so, what do you think? Uh, you know, some of the potential consequences for a city like Tampa are um, when we're seeing like you know just massive rate or massive rent increase uh, in places like you know that are generally speaking desirable to live like downtown and, you know, in the various bar districts.
1: Right. So uh, it's such a tough subject because there's so many ways to look at this. I mean, it kind of depends on your viewpoint. Um, Me personally, I think it just more so contributes to urban sprawl in the sense that, you know, a lot of people aren't able to live in South Tampa and downtown Tampa like they used to. I mean, I remember growing up, my grandmother's house was maybe in the 300 to 400 range. I looked on it on Zillow literally last week and now it's like 1.2 million. It's just honestly absurd and kind of shocking because, you know, growing up around here, like I, I would have never expected that Tampa would be kind of a hub for the younger generation and the people who are trying to, you know, work remotely. I always, I always knew like Miami or Orlando was always a hub because of just the tourism, that aspect. But in my wildest dreams, I never expected Tampa. So I think it's it's negative in the sense that it's it's causing a lot of people and kind of the culture of South Tampa to kind of um, spread, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I think it's losing a lot of its neighborhood culture. I mean, when you look at Tampa, probably about when, for instance, my mom was growing up. I mean, it was heavily Hispanic, Italian culture. um, You know, everyone knew everyone, all the families knew each other. I mean, you still get a little bit of sense of that in South Tampa because it's just the nature of how it is. But I think you lose kind of that. What what made Tampa great is what you're losing because people can't afford to live here anymore. So now they're forced to move, you know, different areas like Seminole Heights, Riverview and Brandon, which is great for those areas, because it's going to start developing areas like that that used to be, you know, not the greatest places to live. Um, if you were to told, tell me, you know, 15 years ago that you were living in North Tampa, I mean, that, that was a pretty dangerous place to live um, 15 years ago. Nowadays, you you know, you can drive through Seminole Heights and, you know, you can go grab breakfast with friends, lunch. It's, it's an up and coming area. So it's just places like that, Riverview, Brandon, a lot of those places were kind of rough and rugged. And now, just because of how gentrification works it's 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 ultimately just blossoming so it is tough because of the fact that it's you know south tampa is losing its culture but um which i i hate um i i'm not a fan of this new uh uh cloud chasing uh culture that's in tampa it's like almost like a mini miami but um i think overall for the greater tampa bay area it's great it's just it's it's tough for, you know, the specific urban spots. So,
0: yeah, I, I mean, I kind of noticed that too, when I moved here, uh, you know, I moved here like basically at the start of 2019. Um, And so, yeah, it was just kind of, it just seemed like it's, it's kind of blown up. Um, You know, I I got a job interview down here and I was like, well, well, the beach, it seems like there's a lot of, you know, young people and places to go. So it seemed nice, but I think uh, COVID definitely, you know, rapidly increased that, uh, that growth. And, and everything like that. So, I mean, it's good for the city, but, you know, at the same time, it, it I think it also kind of depends on, you know, where the, the leadership in the city, uh, you know, puts, um, puts the stresses like growth and everything like that, because, uh, you know, I growing up in Austin, I, you know, I really do like Austin, Texas and, and people go down and visit and they'll love it and, and things like that, but it's, it's changed a lot. And I think, you know, some of the policies that were put in place, uh kind of made downtown um you know not as desirable as it is as it once was when i was uh growing up there but uh it seems like tampa's kind of doing the right things at least from what i can tell right now so I, i hope that'll continue
1: right now they are i mean ultimately it's all about kind of how you allocate your capital resources um luckily tampa's kind of slowed down um i think that if you know Tom Brady were to bring another Super Bowl I think that would have just pretty much promoted more growth Um, but I agree I mean it's all about the scalability of a city and you know if the infrastructure is in place which luckily I think for the most part Tampa is uh, we're not as um, consolidated and kind of squeezed together as Orlando because I mean you drive to Orlando now and it's a nightmare I mean it's it's such a big city but its infrastructure was not built for that it was only built for really Disney and a tourist attraction and the inflow of all these residents. Now, I mean, you can, you can visibly tell just based off traffic and everything. I mean, when you drive from Tampa to Orlando, it used to be just like maybe 50 to hour minute drive. Um, But now I mean, it takes close to an hour and a half, two hours because you're just stuck 30 minutes out driving, you know, an additional hour. So who knows? I hope, I hope for the best.
0: Yeah, I hear you. Well, you you mentioned uh allocating capital so now we'll talk a little bit about allocating your personal capital. Uh so, do you do any like stock related investing or any other kind of uh, investing? And if so, um, you know, how do you do it and uh I guess what are your some of your goals um that you have to, you know, with with investing.
1: Right. So, when it comes to allocating my uh resources, I do it all myself. I would be very upset with myself if I went to school for five years in finance and accounting and didn't understand at least the basics of stock trading and um, just overall investing. So um, I typically, you know, I have my traditional four hundred one k that I contribute to. Um, I try and max that out as much as possible. Um, just it, it, and again, it kind of determines on it's determined on what your employer matches. If your employer is not really matching. I mean, you don't really need to use a 401k. You could put it in an ETF. It's kind of your your risk appetite. Um, and this is just me personally. I'm I'm not giving anyone, you know, stock advice. I would just say that, it, you know, luckily my my current employer matches pretty well, so might as well just maximize that if it's free money. So, um, but I typically use a Robinhood account to do all of my investments. Um, and when it comes to goals. Um, I always make a joke uh, to my girlfriend that, you know, I invest in this one stock, right, that it's low risk, potentially high reward. And I said, look, if this thing hits 10 bucks, we're going to be good. You'll, you'll see it. You'll see a ring sooner rather than later. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just things like that. I mean, but when it comes to overall uh, just goals, I would say, you know, just consistent growth, um, trying to match the market of, you know, traditionally 7 to 10 percent is always the goal. Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned 7 to 10% um which I think is interesting that that you brought that up because you know I think uh I was talking to one of my buddies uh Dan who was actually former co-host before he had to leave me here but he was uh complaining um last year that he only uh i think he had like only like a 25 or a 30 percent return because of you know how inflated the market was and he thought that he didn't beat uh the s p 500 by enough when uh you know obviously it's you know the average is around seven to ten percent maybe 11 depending on who you ask um so how do you look at um your investments do you generally just use like etfs or do you kind of play i know you mentioned uh the one stock to go to ten bucks, but do you kind of just uh, you know pick at companies that are in your I guess um, in your wheelhouse, or do you just you know mostly ETFs and kind of just throw um, throw some at, at random companies here or there?
1: Yeah. So if I had to take a certain percentage, I'd say about eighty ish percent, give or take. I mean, it just kind of depends on the day, but usually around like this. 60 to 80% is in ETFs. Um, I think that having that safety net of just following the market, um, because traditionally speaking, I mean, I know your friend Dan hit 25%, but there's definitely going to be a year where he's going to be negative 25%. It's just how the market goes. And if you look at the past 50 years, it's always going to stay at an average of 10%, right? So there's always going to be highs and lows. It's like a roller coaster. There's always going to be good years and bad years. So I think, that allocating a certain percentage of your investments to ETFs and, you know, the mutual funds, I think is a good practice. And then with that, and again, it kind of depends on your risk appetite, right? So if you're not really feeling risky, I'd say 80 to 20, if you're feeling risky, 60 to 40, that's just my personal preference. That's what I've kind of seen throughout the years that I've invested. Um, And so with that 20 to 40%, I would say I take that money and the first thing that I look at before I invest in any specific company is their balance sheet and cash flow statements. I know a lot of people look at their P&L and look at the revenue and they're very top, you know, top line focused, but I mean, I'll I'll never forget the the same professor that told me I needed to move up to, you know, one of the financial hubs was like, "Look, all you need to look at is their balance sheet and cash flow. That'll tell you everything you need to know because cash is king and Ultimately, you can determine the health of a company or a firm by their cash flow. If they have negative cash flow, probably not doing too good. Um, if they have positive cash flow, they also may not necessarily being too well. You have to kind of balance you analyzing both of those to determine whether or not a certain stock is within your realm of risk. Um, case example, right? You look at the airline industry during COVID. Um, a lot of them took a massive hit one company stood out Southwest. Why is that? Because they had a very strong balance sheet. They weren't heavily leveraged. Uh, They had a lot of cash on hand. And so I think it's kind of taking those two financial statements and comparing it and just overall taking the time to understand what you're investing in. I know a lot of people just go on these momentum investments, which is probably one of the dumbest things you can do because in my opinion, for every, you know, story you hear of someone making a, you know, a hundred thousand dollars off of Dogecoin or GameStop or whatever the case may be, there's probably a thousand other stories of people who've lost more than that. So, you know, I think it's all about taking the time and effort and not un- and, and, and realizing it's not instant gratification. You have to put the time into understand what you're investing in.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like you kind of have the uh almost like the Warren Buffett the value investing um kind of principles. Uh, which is definitely, you know, not super common for people our age. Um you know, you you already mentioned it, you know, with the emergence of you know Bitcoin, crypto and like GameStop um and even like just standard tech companies. It seems like everybody's kind of chasing the next the next bag um so to speak and and like kind of like a get rich uh get-rich-quick scheme. So, um, you know, why do, why do you, like, I guess, advise that? Do you think, like, these g- growth companies and, like, you know, maybe, I guess, crypto or, or Bitcoin or anything like that, um, do you think that they're going to you know, be hit even harder than, uh, you know, maybe some of these value companies that have, uh, you know, just a steady cash flow coming in uh, comes a potential recession?
1: So, I don't necessarily think that, Bitcoin and crypto are bad. I think that investing a large portion of your potential capital isn't the wisest thing uh, just because of the volatility of those those investments. I mean, by nature, they are very volatile. I mean, we've seen it over the past five years. Um, when it came to situations like GameStop and AMC, I think it's terrible for the market. I mean, you ask any investor, anyone in finance, That's like one of the worst things that could have, I think, happened for the market because it just shows that if you get enough people to influence, it's almost like market manipulation to an extent. Um, Because if you get one person who has a massive following, say like an Elon Musk or, you know, Jeff Bezos or whoever, like they can manipulate a, a stock. Case example, Elon Musk, he was promoting Dogecoin. Um, I think right before he purchased a bunch of it and he goes on SNL and, you know, talks about how great it is, probably made a great, you know, return on it and sold it out. And then what happened? It crashed. So, um, I don't think that those investments are bad per se, because I think there is to an extent, a wave of the future with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. It's just it, I don't think it's reached that phase yet. And I think there's just too much volatility And I know people who use Bitcoin are very much against regulation, but there's a reason why they're against regulation. It's because of the fact that they're able to manipulate the market so much. So I don't think it's necessarily bad. Um, I just compare those situations to the, you know, Vegas casino, right? You walk through a Vegas casino, you see thousands of people. I guarantee you for, you know, the people, you know, you always walk around and you see people yelling, right? Like, oh, they just want a bunch of money. Uh, that's awesome. Well, guess what? I get guarantee at that table, like the other four guys lost a shit ton of money. Um, so I, I again, I think it's not necessarily bad, but, um, uh, I wouldn't go and I'd say maybe five to 10% is what I would invest in when it comes to Bitcoin. And I know that there's people who are probably going to listen to this and be like, yeah, you're an idiot. Like Bitcoin's the future. I know those people. I, it's just not my style. Um, everyone's got their own style.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I'm a Bitcoin guy. So I, you know, I've, I I invested a couple of years ago. So, you know, I've done pretty well on that. But, um, you know, to your point about other cryptos and things like that, I think you know, when it comes down to it, it's a lot of just similar to your uh, thesis when it comes to investing in companies. Like if you don't really understand it or understand the utility or, you know, whatever the meaning behind it, um, you know, you're going to get rug pulled on on some of these risky investments whether it's GameStop or or whatever it is um you know we actually had portnoy uh you know the president or founder of uh, barstool sports put out a video today about his safe moon investment which was like just a shit coin that he even claimed he didn't even know anything about he put 40 grand into it and uh he checked the investment and while he was at the conference um it was at 4k so he lost he got like basically Forty thousand to four K, and then they said you need to I don't know go to volume two or whatever it was. I have no idea. I don't know right. anything. In safe mood. but he, and once he switched to volume two, it went from four K to one hundred and forty dollars. So he got went from forty thousand to one forty. So I think uh, you know I I think Bitcoin's here to stay, and a lot of these other ones um, are not necessarily the greatest investment. But you know I think everybody's gonna kind of do the research and, and come to that conclusion on their own before, um, you know, because you're going to have people push things on you and you're going to think you're full right. of shit. Eventually.
1: Well, no, I think the wave eventually is going to get there. It's just like you said, bit, you know, the ones like Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, those are very established. So I think those aren't necessarily risky. It's just these like one-off ones, like you said, that, you know, you can put 40 G's in and then you walk away for 15 minutes and it's down to four so i don't know i mean i know it's the wave of the future um i have a little bit of an investment but nothing like you know earth shattering um so i get it
0: yeah i gotcha all right so i guess a a little bit more of a difficult question how do you determine that you're in a bad stock position and uh like i guess determine whether or not you're gonna sell
1: yeah so again this is I know this is going to be debated till the end of time. Um, For myself, I look at its uh, 50-day moving average. Um, You know, if it crosses below its 200-day moving average, it might signal, you know, kind of a change in its trend. Um, And so, again, it's all kind of about your risk appetite. Like, if you need the funds, like, now, um, once you've taken, you know, probably a 10% 10% hit, maybe it's time to, you know, cut your losses, walk away from the table, say, all right, that was a bad one. But the, the key is you gotta learn from it, right? Like, why was it that you lost 10%? Did you buy during a peak? Um, you know, just things like that to understand. Um, but I'd say yeah. I mean, it it, it all depends on your risk appetite. Like, for instance, right, like one of my stocks is taking an absolute shitter, but I I've already put enough money in it that I think like it's not like it's not going to hurt me if I leave it in there, and it's not going to hurt me if I take it out. Um, and it's expected to go up. I mean, everyone expects their stocks to go up, but um, again, it's kind of a, a wants versus needs uh, basis. So what I recommend is again, if if it hits that ten percent mark, maybe start evaluating it and saying why is it going down? Is this a is this kind of a a shock or is this more so like a long-term trend? Um, Because a lot of times, you know, these companies will take a shock, right? Like you can't, Ukraine, Russia, that shocked a lot of industries. Um, It spiked all the gas companies, right? So that's, that's just a a current event shock that happens. Um, So I I think that's, that's it. I, I would give it like maybe a 30 day, um, analysis and then kind of go from there but i always say it's better to sell when you're at a loss than you know a rapid win because then you don't have to pay taxes um so that's just my viewpoint i i always aim to try investing companies that i deem a long-term capital gain not a short term because obviously the more you make in a short-term game the more you're going to have to pay in taxes eventually the bill always comes due i know you hear all these stories of people making you know, hundred K off of one stock, but in reality, they're only making like sixty. Um, so, that's just kind of my my viewpoint on the matter.
0: Yeah, I got you. Play the long term game, and I think another thing that helps me with it too is, you know, before I invest in a stock or a company or, or whatever you want to call it, I develop a thesis behind why I invest in it, and uh, you know, once you have a long term outlook. On it, you know, the price necessarily, like maybe you could get it a little bit better of a price or what, um, but at the end of the day, if you truly believe in the fundamentals of the company and and everything like that, you know, the stock theoretically should go up as well. So, um, I think just having like a long-term outlook helps as well. So, um, you know, when you play with these short-term games like you're talking about, that's when you could potentially run into trouble, especially if you don't know what you're doing. So, um, right. Yeah.
1: Well, it's also about kind of analyzing okay what do you as an individual right use on a daily basis like what are your specific needs it's kind of like what you you know kind of pointing back to warren buffett right like he for the most part invests in stocks that he uses on a daily monthly yearly basis i mean that's why he invested in delta because he flies delta that's why he invested in amex because he uses amex every day like those are going to be stocks that are going to be around for a long, long time, and unless you know some freak accident or freak you know event happens, they're going to be continuing in business. So I think, like you said, it's kind of like developing that thesis of okay, why is this a value stock? How does it bring value to me? How does it bring value to other people? Because that ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what's going to determine the stock
0: price. So, yeah, I gotcha. All right, so what what are some tools, if any, that you use to uh, analyze stocks and and find companies?
1: So a lot of times I just use Excel. Um, You can go to Edgar, which is kind of the SEC filing uh, website. You can download any type of um, SEC file document, whether that's uh, proxies, whether that's, um, you know, press releases and or quarterly financials, yearly financials. Uh, So I usually take those and then you can kind of convert those PDFs into Excel spreadsheets if you'd like. Um, that's what I do if I want to do any, you know, type of analysis, whether it be, you know, the return on assets, um, return on investments, um, things of that nature. So I typically like to look at the ROA and ROE, uh, when I do that, just because that kind of gives you a sense of the health of the business. Um, and I think that that's, that's ultimately, ultimately the source of truth, right? Like those are audited financials, um, you can do all types of like power BI analysis and all this and all these, you know, pizzazz and look for trends. But I think ultimately the proof is in the pudding. It's going to be in the financials. A lot of times they file, you know, three year financials. So on a baseline, I think that's like a good starting point. And then if you want to start comparing it to, you know, other companies within it's like peer group, that's when you can kind of start consolidating all of that information and then run your own analysis and say like, Hey, you know, I want to invest in this, this, and this. I mean, case in point, I remember um, I was bored during COVID and this was obviously during like, you know, a lot of free time. Um, But I took the price of, um, you know, probably like 20 stocks that were heavily impacted. So, you know, cruise lines, um, hotel industry, um, airlines, like different ones that were immediately impacted. Right. And I took their stock price based on, you know, let's say one one and I saw their stock price at the current moment and then I ran that comparison to say, okay, these are very, you know, value stocks, even though they're taking a hit right now, they're value stocks. It was like Marriott, Delta, you know, companies that the government for more or less isn't going to let go out of business. And if you run that analysis of saying, okay, I'm buying right now when it's at a dip, it's a known dip, it's the COVID pandemic it's, 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 it's everywhere. If I buy right now, if let's say I were to allocate $1,000 on like a, you know, price weighted uh, index, um, where would my return be if I were to get to just the original levels of uh, 1-1-2020? And I think like kind of performing that analysis is something that can be utilized to say, okay, this is a good investment. This is a bad investment. This is the potential return. This is the potential loss that could happen. So Um. again, at the end of the day, investing is like a very structured and regulated version of gambling. So it's kind of a crapshoot. But
0: yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize that you can find uh, everything on, uh, you know, one place on the SEC website, because usually how I find a company's financials is I just Google, you know. Um, Apple investor investor relations or something like that, and they generally have their like media press filings and then all their documents and stuff like that on their. Investor. Yeah, usually
1: companies do have their uh, their SEC filings on their company website, at least the the publicly traded ones. Yeah. Um, like like you said, the Apple. So yeah, it's typically it's obtainable.
0: Yeah, yeah, you can find them. You just got to know, like I guess, where to look. Right. All right. So last question to wrap up, you've been very generous with your time here, but say one of your friends came up to you now um, because it's, you know, they're hurting with inflation or whatever. Um, They're trying to figure out a way to grow their money because they're realizing that just putting it in a savings account with 0.25% or 0.1% is not doing it for them. So what would, what advice would you give them to get started investing? And, uh, you know, how would you help them get started?
1: Right. So I'll use a uh, anecdote of one of my close friends, for instance, he is, um, he has been in medical school the past, what is this, six years now, Um, you know, has a huge amount of debt. Um, But he's come to me personally and said, Hey, man, like, I really want to understand finances. I really don't understand what's going on. I've, you know i've been in med school i don't have time to really focus on this like what kind of like tools of the trade and or secrets do you have and what i always tell him is look you know i know you're in a lot of debt so you need to start first off number 1 establish a budget to eventually pay off that debt obviously he's in a profession where he'll pay that off you know relatively soon once he's out of his uh, residency but um i also explained to him you know the uh, the law of compounding returns it's you know, it's something that a lot of people don't understand. Um, they they hear it. They hear compounding returns. But again, like, you know, if you put your, let's say you put $1,000, right, in the market and it grows at 10%, right? The next year, let's say, and this is just an average, the next year it's going to be worth $1,100, Right. Then the year after that, just and that's just the thousand that you initially put in. It's just going to keep compounding. So if you were to put a thousand and then let's say on top of the one hundred that it's going to gain, without even doing anything, you were to put another thousand in, it's just going to continue, you know, continuously grow. Um, and so what I recommended to him was, look, have your set amount of cash, what I like to call like an emergency or rainy day fund, handy. So typically, I know. Um, the American average is usually two to three worst month of rent um, or like a certain percentage of your paycheck, whatever, whatever that may be, whatever's in your kind of risk appetite, Um, have that set aside for emergencies, whether it be, you know, medical emergencies, uh, loss of job or whatever, but then really try and focus and hone in on, you need to continuously um, put your money towards that account whether it be through a financial advisor whether whether it be through robin hood and you just disperse the amount every month um, or every paycheck and i think that's what people don't understand about becoming financially free is because you know especially nowadays news cycles are just promoting people to be so dependent on the government and so dependent on these stimulus checks and handouts and you know It's like I told him, I was like, what if I told you if you don't, if you put, you know, $10,000 in here right now, by the time you retired and contributed X amount, you'd be a millionaire. Everyone has the capability of becoming a millionaire. They just don't understand that the law of compounding returns is the way to get there. And I know a million doesn't mean a lot in today's society with inflation, as we've discussed, but still to a lot of people, that means a lot. And I think if people really sat down and took the time to kind of understand that, They'd be more in tune to save the money from going out to eat and putting that seventy to eighty dollars in an investment that within a year can be worth you know x amount of money. So that's that's the one piece of advice that I would give to my friends um, who don't understand finance. And I I always tell all of my friends who are in like medical school, I'm like, look, if you ever want to sit down for an hour or two and just talk about things, um, I don't want to know anything personal about you. I just want to understand what your ultimate goal is. And I'll tell you what you have to do to get there.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, you mentioned it with Robin hood and I, I, uh, you know, before would point friends and families to this app called acorns, which essentially would, you know, you could set it where you can automatically deposit and it would just invest it for you. And it was like a robo advisor sort of thing. So, I mean, there's, right. there's definitely a lot of avenues out there, especially with technology that have made it easier to get started. Um, so yeah for anybody that's uh listening i think you know if you're determined enough you could just do a couple of google searches or ask a, a friend uh you know because i'm sure people have friends now that are at least one or so, one or so person that's as interested in it or has looked into investing in some way shape or form um just talk about it you know just there's free content out there you can definitely do your own research and uh you don't have to be an expert to get started that's for sure absolutely couldn't agree more all right, John. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh yeah, do you have anything you want to give us some parting words to sign off here?
1: No, it's been a, a great experience. I always love talking about finances, um, especially in today's hectic world and volatility. So it's always great to kind of discuss that and see where uh where your mind's at. Cause you know, I know we talk about things offline, um, but it's always it's always fun to hop on and give, you know, whoever's listening, any type of advice that, or, you know, perspective that they didn't have before. So I appreciate the time.
0: Yeah. Okay. Of course. All right. We'll have you back on eventually. Uh, maybe we'll have, a we'll tell some crazy stories or something like that. And, uh, deep dive dive into
1: the trades. I got some trade stories. We could do a whole podcast on that.
0: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) We'll do that next time. All right. That's it for me. And that's it for John. Thank you so much.